your host, Alex Garrett. So what is going on on our streets in New York City and with everything going on with the police department, everything with police reform, I thought my next guest, Florence Finkel, who's been you know, in New York City as an assistant DA, and then she worked with the Civilian Complaint Review Board here in New York, all of it, and the Department of Corrections. I thought Florence would be a great person to talk to from NACOL, which, by the way, is National Association for Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement. Florence, first of all, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Alex. So what what are you seeing that maybe people just reading the headlines aren't seeing? Because you've had experience in this. So what are you seeing around the shifting, around the movements, around the police reform that maybe no one else is seeing right now or doesn't want to see? And it is something that has stuck. I mean, right? This this tragedy has stuck with us. Whereas maybe you disagree, but sometimes when an uh, an incident happens like this, the the media kind of goes away. The coverage does it goes away after a little while. This one has stuck more so than the others. Would you say that that's accurate? Has that, how has that oversight gone? What we're seeing now is much, much, much bigger 
And how has the Civilian Complaint Review Board been going along since its inception? What Have you seen it progress or regress? Or what, what have you seen from the board itself as we move along uh, in time? What's interesting is that in 2013, it really got its its sort of launch. It got to be bigger and better. And wouldn't you know, a year later, Garner's death, and that still rattles the city. Wouldn't you say that that whole uh, tragedy in Staten Island still rattles the city to this day? Right. And, you know, the it's the board has come under fire at times, but what would you say to those critics like to to change the narrative of what you what that board does?
uh, the police departments more transparent, to make the accountability systems more transparent, to try to impact police department policy and operations. And in New York City, frankly, we have, relative to what exists in the rest of the country, we have a fairly robust civilian oversight of the police. So in addition to the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which investigates complaints filed by members of the public against NYPD sworn officers involving force, abuse of authority, discourtesy, and offensive language, um, we also have the NYPD Inspector General, which was created at the end of the Bloomberg administration, it's housed within the Department of Correction, uh, Department of Investigation, the Inspector General for the city, and that is kind of a monitor of the police department. It doesn't really investigate individual complaints, but it analyzes NYPD operations and writes reports recommending changes to those operations or training or policies and procedures. So, for example, early on in its tenure, it rec uh, issued a report on yeah, NYPD uses a force and use of force reporting, and as a result of that study, the police department created, you know, required officers to prepare a use of force report, which it had never done before. And so, and we also, there's a third, um, commission that people don't usually know about. This was created during the Giuliani era as a result of an executive order called the Commission to Combat Police Corruption. And that uh, commission, is its goal is to monitor um, internal affairs bureau investigations that are focused on uh, corruption. And they issue annual reports and oftentimes make recommendations to the police department. From your experience, is what the NYPD is doing right now, which is shifting around <clears throat> resources, is that going to help us in the long run? Uh, or what would you say to those shifts happening now? Hard, hard to say. I mean, I think these things are just in the beginning stages of what they're doing. I mean, uh, I think the biggest thing to have happened so far is the repeal of civil rights law. Section 58, which protected the personnel files of firefighters, correction officers, and police officers in New York State, and concealed them from public view and Freedom of Information Act requests. And while people often focus on the importance of seeing indi individual officers' complaint histories, what's, I think, really important about the repeal of that statute is that it's going to open up uh, and make transparent the internal disciplinary, the accountability systems that exist within police departments and correction departments around the state. And that's very significant. Right now, for example, or prior to the repeal of 50A, trial judges' decisions in the NYPD were not subject to uh, we couldn't, they, they were not public. Now they're going to be public. Uh, the police department's going to have to, uh, we're going to see what kind of discipline is needed out against officers charged with certain offenses. And the public can make a decision about whether the department is appropriately disciplining officers who violate department policy. 
And I don't know, there's an estimate, but what would you say we would find from the 58? Because I think <clears throat> instead of painting the whole cop, you know, police department as, as racist or anything, I think these individual files will be a lot more beneficial than just making sort of broad brush statements. Would you agree? Officers uh, are found guilty of improperly using a baton against a civilian. We would want to see what kind of discipline is meted out over time against those officers and whether we as members of the public who invest the police with a tremendous amount of authority, they can arrest us, they can stop and search us, they can use force against us. And we, we, have, we as taxpayers and their employers and the people who invest them with these, this kind of authority, I think, have the right to see whether, if you know, take that example, an officer improperly uses a baton, um, in some cases injuring civilians, whether they're being appropriately disciplined. And if not, what changes should be made to ensure that they are? And and hopefully we see that. Now, uh, at, one of the other reasons why I brought you on is because I do want to know, others have been talking about how community policing is a must. We have to have them in our, our areas where there could be a lot more crime. Is that accurate? Like, do inner city communities want police there? I, I guess is my question. Okay. And the police departments use that term in a lot of different ways. I, 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 so I can't really say what community policing consists of in different communities, and that's not really my area of expertise. But even though there's a defund the police movement, I would surmise that most, I think the polls are starting to show this, most Americans don't think police departments should be abolished. They want them to be better as as district attorney you've been at this for quite a while so what um what cases that you worked on could we could we learn from today i served as an assistant district attorney in the manhattan da's office from 1987 through to 1996 and for the last couple of years of my tenure i was assigned to the official corruption unit and I worked on the um, investigation into corruption at the 30th Precinct in New York City, where approximately 30 officers were convicted of federal and state crimes from a single precinct. And I ended up trying three cases involving officers who had perjured themselves to conceal unlawful searches and seizures. I, I'm not sure that there's that kind of rampant corruption that is existing today, and a lot of this was driven by the crack epidemic and uh, officers basically shook down people, they stopped people unlawfully, they stole money from drug dealers, they, in their cars, they stopped them on the street, they took keys from them, they went into uh, apartments and searched them for drugs and money, they made up facts to justify arrests, but certainly we've seen, uh, you know, 
dying, as it's commonly referred to, is still pernicious and still a problem. Uh, I, I can't, I'm not involved in internal affairs or, you know, overseeing that aspect of the department. I don't work currently in a DA's office, so it would be hard for me to say that that kind of um, thing still exists today. But these things tend to come in cycles. And right now we're talking about police use of force, but it could cycle back to, um, you know, typical police corruption, but certainly falsifying reports and speaking or testifying um, not truthful, intentionally testifying uh, untruthfully about incidents. I mean, it's a kind of a human compulsion, so it, it, it's a part of police departments where you're trying to cover up wrongdoing. What is the uh, police union's role? I mean, I don't think, I would not like to think they cover up, but how have they been working with either NACOL or the CCRB, how, how has that relationship been with the union um, for officers? Well, that's a big question that a lot of people are discussing today. I mean, up until um, this last week in New York and up until last year, the last two years, last year maybe in California, California and New York, two of the most liberal states in the country, had the most secretive rules governing uh, police department personnel files and access to disciplinary records. And I don't think that's a coincidence because these states are big uh, union states and the unions wield, have wielded a tremendous amount of authority. And that resulted in basically keeping accountability systems secret mm. in both states. So that's changed. California changed its law. And now New York has changed its law. And I think what most people are disturbed about, uh, most progressives, I support unions, but I think what is disturbing to people is that uh, police have been able to collectively bargain for things well beyond wages and um, benefits that they can certain collective bargaining agreements uh, involve provisions that go to the heart of, they, you know, they can set the terms of internal investigation timelines and what information police officers have, have, should have access to before they're, uh, before they're compelled to submit to an interview. They can set forth how the disciplinary process works within a department and what appeal avenues the officers have if they're subject to discipline. And there's been a lot of articles recently about how they have perverted, even if you have a police chief and top management who want to be a reformer and want to be tough on discipline, they're stymied by these collective bargaining agreements that liberal mayors have signed off on. Well, let's, all this stuff, why wasn't, first of all, why wasn't any of this repealing and then even moving of the funds done in 2014 after the outrage over Eric Garner? How come it took this? How come it didn't happen sooner? I can't answer that question, but there have been people who have been advocating for repeal of 50A for years, mainly 
the Civil Liberties Union and the Legal Aid Society, and there was litigation within the courts to try to have the courts interpret it more liberally, and that litigation was unsuccessful. So it was up to the state legislature. I think a lot of people were optimistic that once the Democrats in New York State took control of the state Senate, in addition to the Assembly, which they had long dominated, that last year the legislature would have repealed or at least modified 58. It didn't happen. It didn't happen until you'd seen this massive uh, protest uh, and outrage at um, policing in the United States that's persisted now for weeks of um, people being in the streets. So they had to act now, and they didn't feel that they had to act last year. I mean, last year, how many people knew what 58 was? It's like an insider baseball game. I mean, now I have friends who have no no experience in really, you know, police oversight or policing, and they're talking to me about 58. A year ago, they wouldn't have known what it was. A year ago, I think we were just going along our own ways, and then all of this happened, right? You know, in March with COVID, and now we're kind of all a little more aware of what's going on. Wouldn't you say that's also been a factor that we're more aware of this? I think that people are only aware of what 58 was after George Floyd's death. Right. I don't think that it has anything to do with COVID, really. Uh, you guys at NACO, the National Association of Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement. Right. You guys do want to build trust in the in law enforcement, though, right? I mean, that's your goal at NACOL. I'm here. Can you hear me? Florence, can you hear me? Hello? Yeah, I can hear you. Sorry. I said, yes, I can hear you. Okay. The goal of... Hello? I'm here. Yeah, the goal of NACOL, you were saying? And so, but that also does help instill faith in the departments themselves, right? Like, if there's oversight, then we know that there are still good people on the force. Is that also a goal? One of the ideas behind civilian oversight is to enhance public trust in the department um, to make policing more effective. If communities, if members of the public don't trust police departments, they're not going to cooperate and they're not going to report crime, they're not going to cooperate with investigations, they may thwart authority in kind of the ways that we've seen on the streets, and the idea was that if, if I mean, there's different models of civilian oversight, there's the monitors, there's um, investigative models, and but the idea was that if, the, if you don't believe that the police can police the police, mm. and you invest some authority to, um, for internal investigations to, uh, or administrative disciplinary investigations to civilians, or give civilians the, the power to uh, 
in deciding it. What would you say, though, to those that want to abolish? Because from what I hear, you don't want to abolish the NYPD. You don't want to abolish police. But for that sector, what would be your message um, that, no, we can't we can't let them go completely? I think the majority of people are believe that policing might be reimagined or maybe we should refocus the police's efforts on fighting crime. Um and I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, in the NYPD, the police academy is, only, is six months. Uh, in other countries, it's a lot longer. And in other cities, it's a lot shorter. And uh, we don't, maybe the police aren't the best qualified to respond to uh, problems of the homeless. We've delegated as the public. As the public, we have dumped on police departments some of the most undesirable tasks that no one else wants to handle, where government has basically fawned off on the police and cut other resources to deal with. So is policing really the best way to get... You know, most people don't want homeless on the street. Right. Are the police the best way to... Uh, you know, provide housing for homeless people, most of whom are mentally ill or have some sort of drug issue? Are the police officers the best qualified to respond to um, calls involving possibly dangerous mentally ill individuals? A lot of, I think there's a majority of thinking at this point in time that um, maybe they're not and we need to come up with a different solution. And, you know, they also have the task force. I've seen them on the subways when I came home late at night. I'd see them trying to help out the homeless. Have those efforts been effective where regular non-uniform people just go up to them and say, hey, you need help or something like that? I've seen that too. I'm really not qualified to comment okay. on the successful failure of the city's current efforts to, you know, deal with homeless, you know, uh, sure. deal with the homeless. I guess that's not... Well, and I want to get you back because I also see you're dealing, you dealt with Medicaid fraud, and that's something that's eaten me up a lot on this podcast at times. So we'll love you back on that. Um, but yesterday, the executive order is done for police reform. Did you like it? Did, could things have done better? What are your thoughts on that? You mean on the Trump's presidential executive order? Yeah, what would you say to that? I'm, it's perfect timing to talk to you about it, actually. I would between the Department of Justice and the Seattle Police Department. 
And by the way, they are dealing with something up there now. So what have you talked to them through all of this Chaz uh, movement going on up there? Occupation? Right. Exactly. Sure, everyone's hoping for a peaceful resolution. Are you? Does NACO work closely with Mayor De Blasio, Governor Cuomo, and the NYPD? Like, are you guys on all factions with with each institution of our city? On that note, then, do you do you think civilian complaint boards get stiff armed or strong armed into not doing certain things, or are they pretty well strong enough to not get bullied into certain decisions? And this, this, this is also why I brought you on the community boards themselves. I mean, do they have a say in what goes on with the police in their communities in and of itself? When you say community board, what are you talking about? Like in these different zones, they have different community boards that meet, that have the t- town hall meetings and decide for their... You mean like in New York City? Yeah. The community, the community boards? Yes, yep. I mean, I would imagine... Uh, I mean, uh, this CCRB has, uh, like in New York City... How can people help NACOL today? Like, how, how can we help you guys make this city and make this country better when it comes to police community relations? Well, they can go to the NACOL website and um, donate. We're a not for profit, we're not an advocacy organization. 
I mean, in terms of, um, we're not a political advocacy organization, and our goal is to help uh, existing civilian oversight entities and to help jurisdictions who are considering civilian oversight pick the strongest model for them, pick the most effective, strongest model for them, and we often conduct contracted trainings for those jurisdictions. Um, what? So they can donate, they can become a member of NACL, and they can get involved in their local communities. And one more question. When you say jurisdictions are created, would you say when you try to go into different areas and instill something, there's like, you know, people are afraid of change still, or are people getting more open to the idea of oversight, even in the heart of America? Uh, I mean, I've seen a lot of articles in the last couple of weeks about all of a sudden certain communities are considering establishing some sort of civilian oversight. But what I would, these proposals should be well thought out. The municipality should research what has worked and what doesn't around the country. They should pick models that, uh, and they, they should enact legislation and pick models that would will result in effective oversight practices. Mm. Just having, you know, a commission or a board then um, say that, and Florence, I know you're on Twitter because that's how we connected. What's your Twitter, though, for people that can follow you and what you're up to uh, daily? Oh, my God, I barely. <laughs> <laughs> I barely know. I think it's at Florence All right, so I'll, uh, I'll redirect people there. And um, this was a great first conversation. Please come back as this whole thing develops and let us know what you're seeing. Okay, thank you for having me. I'm Alex Garrett. We'll talk to you soon. En JCPenney sabemos que nos extrañas y nosotros te extrañamos aún más. ¿Pero qué pasa si te decimos que tenemos una tienda abierta todo el día, todos los días? ¡La tenemos! En jcp.com o en el app de JCPenney. ¿Quieres un traje de baño? ¡Lo tenemos! ¿Algo para estrenar este verano? ¡También! ¿Marcas exclusivas y tus marcas nacionales favoritas? ¡También! Visita nuestra página para los más recientes cupones y aprovecha envío estándar gratis en compras de $49 o más. JCPenney. Aplica en exclusiones. Detalles en la tienda o jcp.com. 